unless you develop that long-term outlook and begin to look at new economies, for example, you can very easily get, especially, you know, during this time when there are so many attacks coming down, you can really feel depressed. And so I get my uh, cup filled from actually being able to see on an everyday basis uh, spaces and examples of that kind of system or that kind of world I want to live in. I'm Emily Shields. I'm Andrew Seligson. And I'm Marisol Morales. And this is Compact Nation Podcast. Hi, everybody. How are you doing today? Hello. Great. I'm good. Getting ready for Halloween? Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, we were very sad on our block, though, because uh, because it's supposed to be raining here, maybe torrentially or something. It's been like the whole neighborhood Halloween moved to one location, so there's not going to be like kids coming to the door. Yeah. Hmm. It might snow here, but we're going to be out there in it, I guess. Well, you know, Iowans are pretty tough. You guys are built for that. No, disagree. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'm not sure what we're doing. My son's 15 now, so Halloween is not the same. I'll dress up because I like doing that. But uh, in my neighborhood, they have this thing on um, Division Street called Haunted Paseo Boricua. So all the like store, they've been doing this for years. Stores like decorate the community organization set up like haunted houses and it's just a kind of safe cool place for our families to go so hopefully the weather will um you know be in be in our favor that's awesome we already we had a halloween party saturday night i dressed up which i haven't done in years as a zombie princess and then my son fell down and we had to go to the er So. And you went to the ER as a zombie princess. I sure did. And they let you in? That's pretty They sure did. I'm sure they've seen crazier things. <laughs> Halloween in the ER, but I bet yeah. it's confusing. I, yeah. I was going to say, I bet Halloween in the ER, it's hard for them to distinguish like what's real blood, what's fake, who's actually injured, who has a knife pretend plunged in their midsection, whatever. Exactly. Because my, so my son just, he got a cut on the back of his head and just had to get some staples, but we had dyed his hair red. And when he was sweating, the red was like running down his face. So we walked in, we're like, he cut his head and they were like, is that blood or dye or what like is he bleeding profusely from the head or what's going on he was fine so is your is your son undead or did did he die already and what's happening yeah was he a zombie too is he also like what's going on here they did not comment on my um costumeness at all but my husband who refuses to dress up because he's a stick in the mud I felt like most of the questions were in his direction. (laughs) Not taking her serious. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Is it because I'm a woman or because I'm a zombie? Who can say? Right? Yeah. 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 Wouldn't it be funny if I was like, why are you not addressing me? I'm his parent too. And they're like, ma'am, but you're dressed as a zombie. So... Oh, yeah, I think it, it, there's actually a lack of clarity about how HIPAA applies to zombies. So they, they tend to they just try to avoid that terrain altogether. Yes. So, yeah, Halloween has been eventful for us already, I would say. 
Nice. Yeah. Yeah. I haven't been to a good Halloween party in a long time. I may have to change that next year and just do the party myself. For sure. Yes. All right, everyone. Next year, Halloween party, Marisol's house. I'm in. I'm in. What else has been going on? I we had a big in Minnesota last Friday our student ready campus summit, which I think I talked about before on the podcast, but it was fantastic. We ended up with over a hundred folks from um oh I added it up. I think 20 campuses and 12 community organizations um, talking about how to be student ready, how to meet students' basic needs. A lot of really great conversations. Um, We had a great keynote, a student leader who actually the day before worked with the governor to declare October 24th um, student food insecurity day in Minnesota or something like that. I don't think that's the exact language, (laughs) but someday recognizing student food insecurity, which um, was also an accomplishment. So big week last week. Nice. Yeah. And how about you, Andrew? We're getting ready for the big annual Newman Civic Fellows Conference here at the Edward M. Kennedy Institute for the U.S. Senate in Boston. Uh, So that, yeah, it's always great. We have about 200 of our fellows from across the country coming to do a couple days of uh, learning, connecting with each other. We'll have a uh, Senate simulation, U.S. Senate simulation organized by the Edward M. Kennedy Institute. They do this incredibly high quality uh, experience for students. They'll also hear from terrific city councilor here in Boston uh, and uh, do some other things that are about understanding how to work together on issues and learning from each other. So I'm excited for that. That's in a couple of weeks. Uh, and we will bring you a little bit later some conversations with some of the fellows that's coming up on future episodes of the Compact Nation podcast. So uh, always an exciting time of year when the fellows come to town. Yeah, I think those I think that's usually just about my favorite podcast episode of the year is we interview students. It's been the last, what have we done it three years in a row now Two. It's been really interesting every time we've done it. Yes. It's some number like two or three. I agree with that. (laughs) And it's been excellent. I agree with that part also. Awesome. Well, I was just at the Kumu conference and then the uh, International Association for Research and Service Learning Community Engagement Conference, IRSLIES. Uh, So last week was like conference week. Uh, I didn't get to go to Imagining America this year, but I heard really good things and um, heard good things about all the conferences and people doing really good work. And yeah, and I saw you there, Andrew, at Kumu. I was. In fact, we kind of, uh, we were like ships passing the night. We just saw each other briefly. So the stuff I was thinking of that was exciting at Kumu and there was a lot there that was, um, was stuff you didn't see, but then whatever you saw that was good, I didn't see. Um, but yeah, I got to hear, this was fun uh, from my former colleagues at Rutgers Camden about work they've done and they've done actually incredible work. All of it since I left has nothing to do with me that 
involved a a new approach to financial aid that basically said we're just dispensing with merit aid and we're focusing on making college affordable uh, for low income families. But then also, and this was what the presentation was about, thing about once you do all that good work to increase access, how do you actually make the institution uh, a place that is ready for the students who are coming? And they have had extraordinary results um, in retention and persistence among students uh, really across the board. Um, and there's, you know, I, I did not commit all the data to memory, but essentially no gaps uh, based on any kind of demographic group uh, in terms of the rates of success. Um, and so it was just an interesting story about kind of starting off from a community engagement perspective about connecting with schools and then thinking about, OK, what do you need to do systemically? So the first step in that was make college affordable. And then the second step is change the institution in the ways that are, you know, that will make it a place where all students can succeed. Um, so anyway, that was that was really great to see. Awesome. Thanks for sharing. And uh, just because I have a mic and I have the time to shout out to the Chicago Teachers Union for the strike and advocating for resources for um, our kids and all neighborhoods of Chicago. So my son's been out on strike uh, and uh, I come from a family of teachers. So this is really important for, mm-hmm. for us. So hopefully they'll get a, a contract soon and my son will be back to school and uh, kids will be getting what they deserve. Yep. Public school teachers for the win. That's right. I was going to say in states both where they have the legal right to organize and in states where they don't, teachers, I think, have just been setting an incredible example across the country of advocacy in a way that recognizes their own interests, but also connects those with the public interest in decent education for everybody. Um, and it's to me, it's been incredibly impressive. Uh, it's impressive everywhere, but especially in places where they don't have the protections of, of decent labor laws. Um, the fact that people have been willing to risk pretty much everything economically to to step forward has been pretty amazing to see. Yeah, it's important. It's important, you know, public institution for our democracy. So we have to keep yes. them going and making sure that they make the investments. Oh, the, you know, in that context, it, I was just reminded a thing I think I'll be doing before the next time we record. So I'll maybe report back. Uh, I'm have the very exciting opportunity to speak to a group of uh, social studies teachers, the Mid-Hudson Council of Social Studies Teachers in New York. They're doing an event uh, on Tuesday, November 5, uh, Election Day um, at Mount St. Mary's College in New York. Um, And I'm very excited in part because I grew up in the Hudson Valley and one of my high school social studies teachers was just very influential in how I thought about everything that I think about all the time, essentially, Um, sort of in my direction of studying social science and pursuing the kinds of things I have career rise, whatever. So to get to talk to that group of teachers and really what they want to sort of focus on is how they can be uh, useful and supportive in the context of the upsurge of civic interest they're seeing in their students and political interest and engagement. Um, so a topic that's, I'm excited that they want to be talking and thinking about that. And I'm looking forward to participating. I'll report back about how that goes. Have I ever told you guys that my brothers are the sixth and seventh grade social studies teachers at the same middle school? No. I think I've heard that before, <laughs> but I don't think it was on the podcast, but I love that fact. It's a fun fact. It's very cute. 
They would hate me saying that. It's awesome and cool. I don't know. <laughs> well, it speaks well of your parents. Yeah. Yeah. It does. That just makes me think of the college convention 2020 that's happening mm. in New Hampshire, uh, January 5th through 9th that uh, Campus Compact is uh, helping with. So um, that information is on our website and how to get students. Uh, my understanding is geared towards high school and college students. So Both. if you're awesome. interested in finding out more information for um, your students, you can go to the compact.org website and look it up. Love it. Awesome. So um, we're going to transition now over to a wonderful interview that I did with uh, one of my uh, mentors and a real leader in this field, uh, Dr. Jose Calderon, who's a professor emeritus at Pitzer College, which is part of the Claremont Colleges in Southern California. Um, I heard uh, Jose many years uh, ago when I was uh, working at DePaul University and got a chance to work with him more closely when I moved over to the University of Laverne, um, particularly in the work that uh, we're doing in the region and um, specifically in the city of Pomona. And he has been such a great mentor to me just to see kind of his leadership both in the field um, as well as, uh, you know, on the ground in the community. Um, and so I got to interview him about what it's like to be an activist scholar, how he defined his career and what drove him um, towards that kind of direction. Um, and really the opportunity that he had to create pathways for others who were interested in uh, being activist scholars, really committed to community work, uh, not just, you know, on the ground level and in, in neighborhoods and in communities, but also um, within the academy of pushing this field to go further and have a responsibility to the communities that we work with. So um, I teared up by the end of my conversation with him because uh, he is so gracious um, and he is a storyteller. So um, I invite you all to listen to Jose Calderon and what it was like being an activist scholar. Jose, I'm really excited. You've been a mentor of mine for a long time. Um, and just want to hear your story um, and what you've learned or how have you been able to maintain yourself as an activist scholar um, in this field? Well, uh, thank you, Marisol. And you're also an example to me of uh, the kind of work that we need to carry out uh, in this country, especially at this time when uh, there are so many forces that are working against our carrying out this kind of community engagement work. Uh, I do have to say that um, I, I became an uh, activist and an intellectual, um, the, that connection when I went to uh, the University of Colorado in Boulder uh, when I went to college, uh, essentially. But uh, the foundations of my um, organizing and connecting the classroom to the community really came from my background of coming to the United States as an immigrant when I was seven years old uh, in a little town called Alt, Colorado, uh, which is which is only about a population of a thousand. It's a farm worker community. Uh, my parents were farm workers all their lives. Uh, they passed away uh, not knowing any English. And uh, when I was in college, I remembered all the 
uh, struggles that they had to go through uh, just to survive. Uh, and uh, we were, we could not be migrants, uh, uh, and there are terrible winters in Colorado. So um, we had to work out in the fields uh, the entire summer uh, in order to make it uh, through the winter. Uh, and when I was beginning to write in classes, when I was beginning to reflect uh, in relation to the concepts that I was learning in sociology and in the field of communications, uh, I remembered all those uh, difficult times. But I also remembered then very early on the type of education that eventually uh, uh, became a part of me. Uh, I remember going to school and I didn't know a word in English, so everybody thought I was mute uh, and that I uh, had uh, uh, mental problems. Uh, and they even took me to the college to test, uh, to test me. And it was this teacher, uh, in terms of the, the issue of pedagogy, who figured out that uh, uh, the only problem was that I didn't know English. And she came and visited our home and really learned about our life uh, that we uh, had an outdoor toilet, that we lived in a one-room house, uh, that we didn't have any indoor plumbing, uh, that um, we were really low-income and poor. Uh, and so she pretended in school, after school, to want to learn Spanish. And uh, really, it was the Paulo Freire method uh, in practice. Uh, I don't think she realized it. Uh, but uh, uh, she would say door and point to the door, and I would say puerta. And in the end, she learned some Spanish, and I learned uh, some English. Now, how that is so significant is that later when I was at the University of Colorado, uh, in my senior year, I asked the professor if I could go back and try to connect with the other seven students who were from my barrio and um, to see where they were at. And actually, none of those students graduated. They all um, uh, did not get past the sixth grade. Uh, and a lot of it was that they just didn't learn English. Uh, and they also ended up, most of them, in jobs that were uh, related to the fields, uh, a tractor driver, uh, irrigation uh, uh, work. Uh, one worked in a restaurant. And one of them died in Vietnam. Uh, and so later I was able then to uh, take that example and that experience uh, and uh, not only write about it, but to learn about the significance and importance of how language can be used as a form of liberation or a form of oppression. And when I graduated from the University of Colorado, I actually went to work with uh, Cesar Chavez of the United Farm Workers in, in uh, Delano, and then came back home. And in uh, my parents' backyard, I took an old garage, painted it red, put a big Huelga Eagle on the side, and started a school with 18 young children, teaching them uh, English. Uh, again, using this um, pedagogical method of uh, drawing from them what were their words and what were what was their life. And I had no money, so I had to go to the store. I got cardboard boxes and I uh, cut them up and I would ask them, uh, 
like I would ask Juan, uh, how was your day? Oh, muy malo, you know? So I would write malo on one side of the card and then bad on the other. And soon these students are carrying their cards home, their boxes of cards. You know how stu young people are. They start sharing all their words and little by little they began to learn English. Uh, the parents were so happy about this that ultimately they got organized and they went to the school board. We went with them and the school board was very racist. And the head of the school board came flat out and told us if we wanted bilingual education, we should go back to Mexico. Uh, and eventually two young students, Eddie Guerrero and Paul Flores, uh, got kicked out of school for passing around a petition. And we ended up uh, organizing a march of 70 miles in the middle of winter in Colorado from all, all the way to the state capitol to protest the lack of bilingual education in the schools and particularly the racism that students had faced in this school. Now, I tell this story because that had such an impact on me uh, uh, that continued for the rest uh, of my life uh, in terms of the significance and importance of language uh, research and then the, the power of, of organizing, of turning theory uh, into action. So I spent the next 14 years, literally, in community organizing. And the only reason I came back and got a PhD after 14 years, I got married, we had uh, uh, two children, uh, and nobody would hire me because of my radicalism. Uh, and I saw a letter on a bulletin board of a PhD program in sociology uh, that was giving uh, fellowships. I applied for it, got accepted, uh, ended up at uh, UCLA, uh, and we lived in the city of Monterey Park, which was going through this democratic transformation, demographic transformation of once being primarily an all-white community to now uh, being primarily Latino and Asian with a diminishing 10% uh, uh, of, uh, of white. Uh, but uh, the city council was still, as has been the character in many cities, uh, primarily uh, white, uh, even in, in though the city was primarily Latino and Asian. And they passed a resolution in the middle of the night uh, uh, against uh, speaking other uh, languages, uh, English only it became. And the mayor of the city, uh, Barry Hatch, um, uh, promoted this and it called for uh, the police also to pick up immigrants uh, uh, who undocumented. It called for closing the borders. But the most important thing is it wiped out uh, any programs, including dispatcher programs, the newsletter uh, of being bilingual to only one language. Uh, again, um, uh, we organized, I became one of the leaders in a coalition called the Coalition for Harmony in Monterey Park, and we were able to eventually defeat this uh, backward bill. There were large demonstrations uh, and, and organizing. And I have to say then, uh, this was a time 
when the kind of community engagement and the kind of research that we promote now was not accepted. I uh, uh, actually wrote a, a paper on this uh, for one of my classes. The professor thought, oh, you should present this at the American Sociological Association. So I went to my first American Sociological Association conference and presented it. And in that um, uh, session, th there was a professor who stood up and he said, uh, you can't do this. This is, uh, you know, uh, uh, this is not right. Uh, and I said, what is not right? He says, well, you are uh, involved in the process of organizing, and I don't understand how you can gather uh, uh, data and field notes and interviews uh, and not be biased. And I had a difficult time at that time to uh, answer the question, uh, but uh, I did uh, uh, in the context which became a foundation of then not only research and community engagement, that uh, as long as I was representing the opinions and the views of those I was researching and that I was part of it and including that in my writing and in my practice and in my research, uh, that it was okay. But I have to tell you that what we call community-based research or community engagement and uh, our being involved in those communities and then publishing was really not accepted. Uh, uh, we've come a long ways uh, in not only now uh, having community-based research, ethnography, uh, carrying out field notes and interviews, and being involved in the process, uh, uh, it is uh, much more accepted. We still have a long ways to go, uh, and uh, I was just recently at the American Sociological Association, and we're still uh, struggling over uh, uh, Michael Burroughway's presentation as president of the ASA about six years ago, where he came out and said uh, basically that this type of research, uh, this type of engagement is still not fully accepted uh, on our campuses, and particularly in terms of faculty and young faculty who are uh, beginning to teach uh, and are still being told, uh, don't get involved in the community until you uh, uh, get your tenure, uh, or uh, we still have a problem of those uh, uh, young faculty members or even students who are carrying out research out in our communities to have their research, to have their engagement, to have their work uh, really being appreciated, uh, honored, and then when it comes time to uh, be evaluated, uh, to be able to have it as a means of uh, uh, receiving tenure or, or having the college uh, certainly honor the, that type of work. Uh, and so that's where I'm at today. Where do you feel like the gap is? Because as Campus Compact, we're a presidential organization. We have close to a thousand members um, with presidents supporting this kind of work. So there's support from the upper administration, but why are faculty still having uh, a difficult time? Um, where's the disconnect? If our campuses yeah. are saying that there are spaces of engagement, but faculty, especially um, young, maybe tenure track faculty are having difficulties in having this work accepted. Right. I think one of the biggest problems is that uh, uh, academia is uh, and the powers that be are figuring out how to take uh, 
uh, what what in the past has been defined as service learning, and and make it acceptable in the context of uh, that uh, the, they will appreciate uh, charity or they will appreciate uh, students being involved in projects uh, uh, like uh, uh, out in gardens. That's okay, uh, but. Um, if it leads to uh, social change or criticizing the establishment or uh, figuring out new alternative models, uh, the, the um, campuses uh, and uh, administrators and other ac uh, ac academics are, 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 are concerned about that. And uh, uh, what I, uh, my experience has been that, oh, uh, when we do um, work like uh, in involving students in pantries or uh, involving students in um, uh, doing uh, uh, paperwork for an office or those kind of things, that's very accepted. But when students are out there uh, marching and protesting for immigrant rights, when they're out there uh, uh, creating um, day labor centers, uh, when uh, in, in some cases, even being out there, uh, uh, as, as happened here at Pomona College, and supporting dining hall workers and getting arrested when the college uh, 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 fired uh, 17 uh, dining hall workers who had worked there for 23 years because they uh, were undocumented, uh, uh, then the colleges have a tendency not, uh, you know, to accept that kind of work or to uh, really appreciate it and to honor it. Uh, and uh, so uh, we still have that gap. Uh, uh, we, we still have uh, a ways to go uh, in that, uh, in that uh, the charity models are still, I believe, uh, are what accepted and not uh, the models that are out there uh, really working to create and, and move uh, social change. Uh, so uh, we still have to, uh, I, I, I believe, uh, uh, you know, change that thinking. And what advice do you give to um, young scholars, practitioners, uh, folks who are interested in um, a career as a scholar activist uh, in doing this work? Well, I run into all the time nationally uh, young scholars and even faculty members who came out of a tradition and history of being involved in the anti-war movement, the LGBTQ movement, the women's movement, uh, the uh, 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 Black Lives Matter movement, uh, and uh, feel that their passion uh, for the reason they initially got involved in academia is being uh, stolen or, or taken away. And they're really trying to figure out, well, how, how do I uh, meet uh, the requisites of what the colleges require, what academia requires, uh, and not lose my principles and values and be able to be out there and create social change, and 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 importantly, not uh, be 
uh, so strung out on so much work that uh, I can't even uh, take care of myself. Uh, and, and I think a lot of uh, faculty members who are out there doing community engagement, uh, young scholars uh, who are trying to carry out that research uh, are facing these questions. So all, all I can relate is uh, how I got through and what became uh, significant for me. So I, I come from a tradition of trying to create uh, democratic spaces. I call them sacred spaces where, uh, uh, where we begin to create models of, of uh, the kind of society, the kind of system we want uh, to live in. And I face that in the classroom where uh, I, I, when I first started teaching, the traditional form of uh, the banking concept uh, and uh, of a lot of what professors are, are taught uh, uh, top down and then giving the tests and getting feedback uh, uh, a, a lot mainly on just what's being taught and not, not critical thinking. And I, I also learned that uh, it's usually uh, just the sort of the few stars who always speak out uh, in that kind of um, uh, in that kind of a framework. So what I began to do in my classes, and it has really worked, is um, I start from the very first day where every student in my class, and I know this is hard to do in a large class, uh, and so I do have the privilege of being able to cap my classes at 25 uh, 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 students. But from the first day, I make every effort to have every student speak. And then uh, uh, I assign the readings, but uh, a culture is created. Uh, the following week, the first question I'll ask, what I want each one of you to answer what I learned last week. And usually what I've learned, what I've learned over a period of time, students uh, who, uh, are doing the readings, students are learning from the concepts that are being discussed in the class, and they usually get the main words, the main concepts, I put them on the board, and it always allows a, uh, <clears throat> a means or an avenue or a road to the new concepts that we're going to be discussing. And I do that throughout the whole semester. And what ends up happening is students begin to share their experience, relate to the concepts and the theories. And not only uh, are they uh, learning from me, but I am learning from them. Uh, I, I give that just as a, a small example, but then uh, that kind of an outlook then we take out into the community so that uh, the outlook is one that, for example, day laborers and immigrants, they know so much uh, and, and they have the direct experience of how they got here, what they face in their everyday lives. They, they actually know more in, in, in terms of that life than the students do. So the culture is created where when students go out there, they're not going out there to just think that they know it all and that they're the teachers, but to really listen to uh, the immigrants and the day laborers uh, in terms of what their uh, lives are all about. Uh, and it begins to develop a relationship, again, that is democratic, that draws out the voice. You know, every Friday, we just have one here at Pitzer, we have a, a, a luncheon that is called Encuentro. 
it's totally in Spanish. And the day laborers from the day labor center where our students do community engagement, the day laborers come and have a lunch. Now, some day laborers say uh, the very minimum, the positive aspect of this is that is the only good meal that they had uh, that week. But the way the uh, Encuentro is set up, and this last week, for example, we had about 30 all together to discuss uh, the issues in Ecuador, uh, to discuss uh, uh, the um, uh, DACA moms who have been deported, to discuss the veterans who are in Tijuana and also have been deported. Uh, the, the language is in Spanish, and the day laborers and the students then um, uh, converse and a space is created. Uh, uh, you, we go around the room and every voice is heard again. Uh, and there is a beginning of the two really coming together. Now, what I found, oh, oh, that is a high level mm-hmm. of, of, of this type of thinking of democratic engagement. But really the highest level is when the day laborers and the students, uh, let's say, uh, go to the level of actually beginning to organize uh, together out in the community uh, when the raids are happening uh, and ICE is in the area. So it's been students and immigrants and then the community who, for example, passed a resolution through the Claremont City Council, making Claremont a sanctuary. Uh, They did the same thing in Pomona, making Pomona a sanctuary. The agreement that the city and the police will not cooperate with ICE when it comes into the community. But they also took it in their backyard and they got Pitzer College to pass uh, sanctuary and a method to actually be able to uh, do something about if ICE came and that they will not give any information. Uh, students uh, took this to other cities. That's an example uh, when it reaches you know, the highest level. And in that kind of process, everybody gets something back from it. The students learn, the, the day laborers and the immigrants are protected. The larger community is educated about the contributions of uh, immigrants in terms of uh, the 12 billion that they contribute to the economy. Uh, everyone uh, gets something out of this. And what expands is this whole concept of developing and building a democratic society, uh, pulling together coalitions that are intersectional, and then uh, ultimately uh, students getting involved in the political process of uh, carrying out voter registration, voter turnout, supporting candidates which support our community, and carrying out naturalization drives to make citizens of, of our undocumented immigrants so that they too can vote in the elections and have a voice uh, in the future in the policies uh, that really affect all our communities. If, if, if just an aspect of that is done in the classrooms, uh, it, it uh, empowers uh, the uh, faculty member or the scholar. Uh, and then also if you use it to in the process document uh, the work you're carrying out, uh, the communities you're working in. This is primary research. Uh, um, uh, you can write articles. All my articles, and I've written over 70 that have been published, are written in the process of what I'm doing. And that just fills my uh, uh, the mind, my heart, 
uh, and I use it, uh, those articles then as example, and I have a blog, I have uh, other means of sharing lessons of how then I can connect the classroom to the community, carry out research, and at the same time then use that uh, to survive in academia. Just one final thing is that uh, for me to get through Pitzer, because all of that was not uh, accepted by uh, some professors, I actually got on committees to ensure that uh, the uh, handbook, the faculty handbook, included an appreciation of uh, ethnography, participatory action research, community-based research. Uh, I, I ensured that I played a role in helping to change that. At the same time, I developed a core of faculty, not only that uh, helped to change the handbook, but that little by little, uh, we're able to organize other faculty to support this kind of engagement, this kind of research. So it did lead then to uh, the development, which has happened in other uh, parts of the country, uh, colleges all over the development of community engagement centers, uh, which uh, could help faculty uh, in terms of making those connections to the community and all would not uh, just fall on them. Uh, also, they fought for such things that if you are teaching a, uh, a community engagement course, that you uh, uh, will be able to then get a course release. Uh, uh, avenues that will allow you to work in the community uh, and uh, not be totally loaded down with work uh, and not being able to uh, carry out uh, all the responsibilities, including community work that is put uh, on faculty members. Uh, when that is done, uh, then there is the possibility of those who we would call activist intellectuals, and they're really out there creating social change, being able to survive in academia. It sounds to me like there a lot of what you're talking about is kind of this alignment, right? So how do you take this core piece of the work that you care about um, and use it within your teaching, within your research, within your service to the university and community organizing being kind of an organi uh, uh, a uniting factor in, in that, whether it's about teaching about community organizing or organizing at the institution to make those institutional changes uh, for the space to be opened up so that this kind of scholarship can be acknowledged, recognized, rewarded. Um, and um, I think that's really important and sometimes a piece that ends up missing at some institutions where um, folks do all this community work, but they don't have the policies in place at their institutions to, to support it. And the important role that even organizing um, within an institution around this um, can, can have. Um, I guess if you could also share with us when you, in this process over the course of your career, um, you felt disheartened um, by what you were facing and how you um, kind of pulled yourself out of it or continued to, to do the, to do the work. Um, we know that this work, um, is oftentimes very personal for us and that there's not always victories. Um, so how do, how do you sustain yourself in, in doing this work and continue to do this work? Not only when um, you were, you know, full on as a faculty member, but now as a professor emeritus and 
and I guess it's kind of sort sort of semi retirement for, for right, you, right? right. Um, you're probably busier now than you were before. Yeah, and I'm still teaching a class where I take the students to live and work with the farm workers. Yeah. So how do you sustain yourself? Well, you know, this is really a, a good question, and and this is vital and and important for uh, uh, new scholars and. Um, uh, uh, what happens to a lot of us, unless, and it's with students too, it's a question of uh, how do we create a consciousness or how do we develop a consciousness of uh, uh, alternative uh, systems, alternative forms, uh, and then being able to see them. And uh, I really believe unless you develop that long-term outlook, uh, and uh, begin to look uh, at uh, new economies, for example, uh, you can very easily get, um, uh, especially, you know, during this time when there are so many attacks coming down, you can, you can really uh, uh, feel depressed. Uh, and so um, I, uh, I, I really have to say this, I get my uh, cup filled from uh, and and continue to go uh, to higher levels um, uh, from actually being able to see on an everyday basis uh, spaces and examples of that kind of system or that kind of world I want to live in. Uh, you know, Einstein, and I really believe this, Einstein said every child is born a genius. Uh, unfortunately, he said, uh, uh, well, Buckminster Fuller later said, unfortunately, the schools tend to de-geniusize uh, our, our, our students. Uh, and uh, what, what Einstein made by that, and I really, uh, you know, really believe that is that, uh, and, and then Paulo Freire, uh, in terms of what he said, that we have the, uh, all human beings have the capacity to create culture, but we are left no different than uh, though, uh, those uh, who can't question or whatever, um, uh, if uh, we don't unleash the full power of our uh, abilities to create uh, culture uh, and to create something new and to go uh, and, and even use the new technologies and go to the highest levels uh, possible. So um, uh, I, I uh, you know, just even start with my family. How do you create a home? So our kids grew up where we divided up all the work in the household, uh, where you really create uh, then an example uh, of where uh, I remember my son even going on strike once because uh, he had to clean the bathroom and he was demanding uh, 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 a a cleaner that didn't have uh, toxic chemicals. Uh, <laughs> later, uh, he gave a speech because he became a, a union organizer and uh, he uh, actually um, helped to negotiate contracts. And in a speech, he said, what taught me to negotiate was way back when I had to clean bathrooms and I had to negotiate with my mom and father, you know. <laughs> uh, and uh, But I, I uh, give that uh, as an example that I, I'll see the day labor center and I see the day labor's meeting on Monday and, and they're uh, uh, democratically discussing how to move the day labor center forward or the example I gave in the classroom or uh, examples where uh, 
every year I take the students. Now we're going to be in our 26 years. Uh, and this came from my passion of my parents being farm workers. Uh, I take them during the spring break to live and work with the farm workers in La Paz, which is in California and Delano. But I, I have to, uh, the passion of this uh, is that they don't go do uh, charity work. Uh, every year the farm workers relate what is an issue that they are taking up that they want social change around. And there are so many examples of every year of, of, of what uh, we have done, but I'll just give one where uh, workers uh, got pray, uh, sprayed two years ago with methyl iodide and they had to go to the hospital. And so the union told us, well, when you come here, uh, uh, we'd like you to organize a demonstration to protest that there is no movement in dealing with the issues of those farm workers. So on the, uh, that first Saturday, our students made Welga flags, they made uh, giant posters, they made um, uh, flyers, uh, over 500 flyers, and then we went to Bakersfield and on four corners, we handed out flyers and where they would call, we had flags. They actually organized the demonstration. I have to tell you, and it wasn't all our effort. I mean, this effort had been going on. One week later after that demonstration, uh, uh, methyl iodide was banned nationally. We felt like we played a role in that. Uh, but that ha that is the example when students go to Delano or La Paz, it isn't, uh, you know, it isn't charity work. It's really learning how to organize, learning how to become empowered. And then that uh, fills, uh, uh, you know, my cup. Uh, students go and they learn about, uh, they go to Abiyani Village, where they learn about the Filipino workers in this country. And that Filipinos in um, uh, California, uh, a law was passed, uh, the anti-miscegenation laws, uh, which were passed, aimed against African-Americans, but they included Filipinos that they could not marry outside their race. Uh, and so when Filipino farm workers grew old, it was students who brick by brick, what a great example of community engagement, built a village for 67 elderly Filipinos uh, in uh, uh, in Delano, uh, it's now a national historic site. Uh, and those 67 Filipino workers then who had lost touch with their families in the Philippines and who the only family they knew were the farm workers were able in their last years uh, to survive. I used to take my students in the early years and there were Filipinos still alive who would share their stories. My students would document their stories. One of them even made a film uh, uh, realizing that her grandfather had been one of those uh, Filipino workers. And then our service projects became framing the pictures of all the Filipinos and then carrying out uh, stories and histories of each one. All of them have passed away now, but at Pitzer, we have a vivid memory of them in that the uh, students created a farm worker garden with a bench that has the name uh, particularly of some of the leaders, such as Brother Pete Velasco. Uh, and every year then, uh, uh, we have a ceremony there before the students go to uh, La Paz, before they go to Abiyani. And um, why I cite that story, because then learning in the classroom about the history of Filipinos and their role in the farm worker movement 
and in unions becomes very, very much alive uh, because what they're reading in the books or what we're discussing in the classroom now becomes uh, uh, not only alive in being at Abiyani, but also in carrying out projects such as framing the pictures of the Filipinos and then being able to write papers on them, uh, do documentary history and doing such things uh, as film. Uh, though, those are the kinds of um, uh, examples that fill my cup and keep me going and where constantly then we're creating uh, examples of the kind of world uh, we want to live in. I just went and traveled with my wife to uh, Spain, uh, and uh, but there was a reason for that travel. Uh, uh, ever since I've been teaching, I've always used the film uh, Mondragon, which is on the Mondragon cooperatives, uh, started in the 1950s, which hire about 78,000 workers. Uh, they are really an example of creating cooperatives. And my work now has moved not only the level of, you know, working with a farm worker, creating a day labor center, fighting for immigrant rights, LGBTQ rights, women's rights out in the community, but it's moving to the level of uh, trying to build uh, with students uh, real examples and spaces that are cooperative, the opposite of, of, of what our schools teach to be individualist, that are uh, about the quality of life rather than not just the quantity of profit, uh, and that really uh, can lay a basis for answering that question to the student, can I use my education in the future and not lose my principles and values. So for example, we have Puerta del Valle, uh, which is a community garden started by an immigrant woman now involving 60 families, uh, primarily uh, led by women, uh, five and a half acres where not only do they have their own plots, but they have a cooperative section that every week they do a farmer uh, farmer garden and then Pitzer also buys their produce from there for uh, the cafeteria uh, and the salad bar uh, these are living examples then on an everyday level of democratic spaces that are opposite the kind of system that puts in the forefront you know just uh, quantity of profit uh, I I could sit here and talk for like eight hours on, <laughs> on the examples, the living examples that exist right now, the, the bike cooperative, the students and their coffee shop uh, that they have that's a cooperative where uh, the selling of sandwiches and coffee then helps to uh, pay their wages. Um, the day laborers who uh, uh, have developed a, a, uh, a garden themselves. Uh, there are just so many examples. The farm workers, when, when we were in uh, Spain and there was a priest that helped start those cooperatives uh, and we went to see his office and uh, one of the uh, guides told us, uh, Jose, where you're standing, that's where Cesar Chavez stood. Uh, Cesar Chavez was so impacted that he came back, and a lot of people don't know this history, and he organized a, a gas cooperative, a, gas, uh, a, a medical uh, clinic cooperative, uh, cooperatives in San Jose. Um, 
And, and now all across the country, we like the Cleveland model, we have uh, where students are involved uh, in developing laundry cooperatives, uh, bringing strands of the colleges and universities together uh, with uh, the hospitals, together with the city, together with the schools, and you investing in credit unions and uh, cooperatives uh, in that city. Uh, I, I think those are new levels that we can move to that really excite me. And my uh, uh, lesson has been that it also really excites students because they begin to see uh, new examples of, of a new economy. And most of all, I think this is happening. We have a uh, 11 million uh, employee-owned companies across the country. Uh, uh, these examples then... Uh, begin to develop in the minds of the students that, hey, this is long-term work and we can actually uh, change the system little by little from below. And regardless of what is happening, I can see those vivid examples of uh, um, places and spaces that, uh, you know, I call sacred that are examples of uh, being cooperative, uh, not individualistic, focusing on quality of life, and that truly involve uh, uh, the community, the students, uh, people together in moving ahead, uh, the, these, this intersectionality of identities, uh, intersectionality of uh, uh, which each one of us uh, uh, is part of in terms of gender, race, uh, class. Uh, you you see vivid examples of that, and I have to tell you that that's what keeps me energized, and I know it's going to keep me energized till my last breath. Mm, thank you. I know. I think one of the things that I learned from you um, during the time that I was in California was like um, how how centering this work on love and, and respect, uh, for, for the community, um, really makes it so meaningful and, and powerful. And, um, I see your excitement. I see the excitement, um, on the folks who from the community. And I just want to thank you for, uh, that contribution to the field and, and to the communities that you've worked in. Well, Marisol, I, I just have to say, you know, on the last day when you left and a lot of us were hurt, uh, we, uh, the Latino Roundtable, uh, met and voted to um, give you a plaque. And um, uh, what was said, and this came from the community, uh, was that you re with, uh, that respect, that caring, uh, the unleashing of uh, students, uh, going through all the difficulties, even sometimes of not getting the kind of support uh, that you need, uh, going above that and then creating real examples of uh, uh, using the resources at the university to support uh, immigrants, uh, to support LGBTQ, to support uh, the efforts of uh, communities of color uh, and the intersectional organizing that uh, went on, um, uh, you truly represented that. And uh, we, uh, that's why it hurt uh, a lot of us for you to leave, but we also knew that uh, you would be taking your energy and your caring um, uh, for the community with you wherever you go. And uh, you're doing that and having that impact 
And so um, uh, we thank you for uh, the, your work in Campus Compact and moving Campus Compact to higher and higher levels, which Campus Compact has always been there to support us. So thank you. Thank you. Got me in tears. <laughs> well, me thanks, too. Jose. So now we're at the uh, fun section of our podcast where we get to share with you what sparks joy for us. So I think given it's fall, uh, we're going to open up with Emily. Emily, what sparks joy for you? <laughs> well, really, the fact that it is fall sparks joy for me. I was in Minnesota last week and saw some amazing leaf edge. Did a little bit of leaf peeping or whatever we, we call it. It's a little disturbing. It, it does, that. but that's well, what that's, it's called. Yeah, in New England, we call it that too. I've carved pumpkins. I, yep. I've carved a pumpkin. I've baked apple pie, getting ready for Halloween. It's just, I love all of it. But my, one of my favorite things about fall is celebrating its 10 year anniversary, 10 years ago on October 20th, 2009, Colin Nissen with McSweeney's wrote the greatest article of all time called it's decorative gourd season mother and I'm just going to, I'm reading it again, reliving its joy again, and uh, just appreciate this piece of writing being put into the world. I shared uh, off air that uh, one of the only pieces of just straight up fan mail I've ever written was to Colin Nissen regarding that piece. He was very nice, too. He replied. Uh, yeah, but I, I also consider it one of the great achievements in Western literature. <laughs> I'll have to read it sometime. So, Andrew, what sparks joy for you? Well, I'm sticking with the theme of uh, funny pieces of writing. Um, this is a piece that I guess is celebrating its two and a half year anniversary. <laughs> it was written in March of 2017, but I only saw it the other day. It's in The New Yorker. Uh, and the, the title is Sorry for the Delayed Response by Susanna Wolf. Um, I saw your wife share that to you on Facebook. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Martina gets credit. So Martina shared this to me, which was possibly a bad sign because the it's a piece that basically just um, is a series of responses written to emails by like a loser who has not responded to emails for a very long time after receiving them. And I can't think of a single reason she would have shared that with me. Obviously I'd like to take this opportunity though to apologize publicly to anyone and everyone out there to whom I owe email. Uh, I, I imagine you are legion, uh, but it is, it's a great piece of writing. And I, I will say that um, I think people who can write spectacularly funny things are amazing human beings because it's I think it's very, very difficult. Most things people write that are supposed to be funny, I don't find very funny. And I think it's a lot easier to do like comedy where you can engage with an audience in various ways. But to just put it on paper and have it work, uh, I'm always amazed by that. And this this piece had me laughing hysterically. So sorry for the late response. Yeah, that's that's my sparks joy. All right. So uh, mine is not a literary work, um, but I was at uh, Iris Slice and I was talking to John Loggins from University of San Diego. And 
uh, he mentioned how he was watching this Netflix show, Rhythm uh, and Flow, um, which has uh, T.I., Chance the Rapper, who's from Chicago, and then Cardi B, who's like my alter ego. And so uh, I vegged on the whole season of Rhythm and Flow, and it was so good and funny. And um, anyway, so I recommend it. Uh, It's a little raunchy, but uh, it's all about, it's like a hip hop um, talent show for the voice, like, like the way the voices, but oh, cool. it's really good. Yeah. It's really good. And you get to see artists from um, all over the country. And, um, I don't know, that's my jam. I, I'm a hip hop head. So it was, uh, nice, uh, to see it. The other thing that I would say sparks joy is that Dave Chappelle just got the Mark Twain, uh, award uh, from the Kennedy Center for humor. So, um, that's exciting too, to see his work recognized, uh, uh, as well. So, have you seen his newest stand-up video? What are those called? They're not called stand-up videos. Uh, the special, Netflix? special uh-huh. Netflix special. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, pretty good. I've not seen it, and it's on Netflix. I thought you were going to say HBO, which would mean I can't have it. But if it's on Netflix, I can. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's on Netflix. There's also one uh, that Tiffany Haddish did uh, on Netflix with all uh, female comedians. That's really good too. Sweet. Mm-hmm. So those are the things that spark joy for me. Um, so awesome. Thank you guys for, for sharing. Uh, this is a fun group of people on the podcast have been known. So uh, we always try to bring joy into our work and uh, bring joy into this podcast. Get yourself a gourd. <laughs> Once you read the piece, that sounds a little more like a threat. Actually. <laughs> okay. You should make compact gourds. <laughs> You can decorate that, uh, Emily. Um, yeah, I'm actually not that crafty, but we'll, we'll sure. put a link to Emily decorating a gourd with a compact logo on the show page. It will so. probably be unrecognizable, but now I'm going to do it. So, yeah. oh, good. Yeah, there let's we go. do it. There we go. All right, folks. Well, um, that's it for Compact Nation podcast. Thanks for listening. And as always, don't forget to rate and review um, our show. We really appreciate those. Uh, if you have any questions or suggestions, email us at podcast at compact.org or chime in on social media, hashtag Compact Nation pod. Uh, we'll be sure to look at that and hopefully respond. Um, so at this time, I think it's our bye-byes. Andrew? <laughs> Bye-bye. <laughs> <laughs> Toodaloo. <laughs> You're slicing it up. <laughs> Until next time, this is Compact Nation Podcast. Ah. <laughs> I think we finished strong there. Oh my God, what? Why? <laughs> Compact Nation podcast comes to you from Campus Compact's national headquarters in the Leather District of Boston, Massachusetts. Our hosts are Marisol Morales, Emily Shields, and me, Andrew Seligson. Our producer is Molly Altiorem Leeper. Music is by Andrew Savage. You can find more of his music at andrewsavage.net. As always, you can find us online at compact.org slash podcast or on social media at hashtag compactnationpod. Thanks for listening. I am the podcat.